an important new addition to Egyptology has come my way very recently. A book called Hidden Meanings by a man called Laird Scranton, who is a specialist in computer languages. Cross-check so many different directions. You know, as a, as a programmer, I've got to be able to determine for myself when I'm right about something when I'm not. And I have to make that determination in a way that um, a company can stake its business on. And so there are enough indicators here from coming from enough different directions that say, this is right, this is right, this is right, that uh, I'm at the point where I really have to go with it. And I can certainly defend it five different ways. His day job is to make incompatible languages compatible with each other. That, again, that's a, a programming technique that a lot of times when I go into a, a client account, they'll have two or three copies of a program that were written over time, started out to be the same program. And I'm expected to figure out what the differences are between these three versions, let's say, of a program. And so I developed programming tools that would compare line by line um, what the differences were and highlight the differences so that I can say, okay, anything that's not highlighted had to be part of the original program. And anything that is highlighted was either added to one program or removed from the other after the fact. Um, I used that kind of approach initially to try to sort out differences between Egypt and Sumer and Egypt and the Dogon. And that sort of put me in the ballpark of what had to be part of the original myth and what had to be uh, evolved later. When Scranton compared the latest developments in, uh, in astrophysics and astronomy to the Dogon and Egyptian account, he found that they were not just similar, I mean, they were identical. The language used to describe these processes was, of course, different, but the processes themselves were virtually identical. Superstring theory and quantum mechanics are written as indelibly into the Dogen and Egyptian schemes as they are into modern books on these subjects. And so Scranton took it still further, reading Stephen Hawking and a number of other um, well-known uh, well scientists and popularizers of the most advanced and uh, by no means easy science. And sure enough, not only were the stories the same, but the diagrams were the same. In other words, the diagrams that are used by modern cosmologists to illustrate an electron cloud are effectively the same diagrams that the Dogon and the Egyptians used to illustrate that particular stage of creation within their own cosmological schemes. So you get a sense now that get a sense of the significance of Scranton's work, he is showing that, he's showing in a way that's practically incontrovertible that the ancients had our science. Welcome back to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. This is episode 45 and we're going to continue with our series Magical Egypt by John Anthony West and this is going to be uh, part 8 of 8. So this is the final chapter, the chapter 8 of 8 chapters in this series. The final chapter, Magical Egypt, John Anthony West. Again, I suggest if you're, if you're enjoying this and getting value out of it, I would recommend going back to episode 38 where I begin with uh, chapter 1 of this series. And I give a brief introduction, and it's informative. It's pretty good. So hopefully you're getting value out of this and enjoying it. Uh, I did this all in one shot. It took me like three hours to get this whole thing done. But support John Anthony West. Buy his DVD series if you can. And uh, hopefully you're enjoying this, man, because like I said, I am. Let's get into it. Final final uh, chapter 8 of 8, Magical Egypt, John Anthony West. Namaste, and enjoy. Lost tale, hidden in the stones. Blueprints of a lost art, from a lost world. Behind the veil lies another Egypt. Hidden Egypt. Originally, as a trainee programmer, I was uh, um, always under the guidance of another more experienced programmer, and so I had help and, and uh, that I could turn to when I was trying to solve a problem. 
um, I noticed over time that I was being given less and less information and expected to do more and more with it and I started to joke with myself that uh, at some point I was going to be given nothing and expected to do everything with it. And the, surprisingly that was just the qualification I needed to be able to research a book like this, <laughs> where there was really no one who could give me the, the guidance that I really needed to be able to sort out what these symbols meant. I had to, had to work it out for myself. I'm sitting here with Laird Scranton, author of Hidden Meanings, a study of the founding symbols of civilization. Um, Laird has contributed a book of tremendous importance, in my view, to the growing library of books that demonstrate the existence of an extremely sophisticated, highly scientific view of the cosmos that existed as far back as we can trace history and probably much further than that. Laird's book stands out among these many others in part because of its, of its originality and in part because it is, unlike a lot of those other books, extremely accessible. What he does, very briefly, is to show that the Dogon, a remote tribe in West Africa, have a cosmology and their symbols and the story of how the universe and humanity within it are created matches the ancient Egyptian story very, very closely and perhaps even more remarkable, and this is where the book becomes controversial in its way and explosive at the same time, when both of these stories are compared to the latest wrinkles in contemporary physics and cosmology, superstring theory and quantum mechanics, quantum physics, all of a sudden the stories are the same and the symbols are the same. My starting point was Robert Temple's uh, The Serious Mystery. I think that's where a lot of people started. That's what brought the Dogen into the consciousness of, of modern society. Um, I read his book. I was very interested in it. Um, uh, I was really interested in his references in the back of the book, and I started following some of, the, some of those references to try to learn more about the tribe and more about just subject matter. Um, uh, from there, I, I, my programming uh, background really started kicking in. Well, let's back up a little bit. I, I um, converted to Judaism when I married my wife, Risa. Um, so I had some knowledge of, of symbols of Judaism. I've had some recreational reading background in Egypt, um, and so I could see resemblances between the symbols that the Dogen had and that uh, were in ancient Egypt and that were in Judaism, and all that said to me, looks like this stuff is related. Then my programming background kicked in, and I could see with the Dogen symbols that they were using techniques that a programmer would use when they design a symbol. A good programmer learns over time uh, to incorporate hints and clues into the form of the symbol itself. If you create a, a field name in a program that's supposed to represent an invoice number, you don't call it XYZ123, you call it INVNO. And I could see that these symbols were using those kinds of techniques and that said to me somebody must have designed them. Somebody who knew enough about designing symbols to, to have used those techniques. So that convinced me I was on the right track. I was looking at design symbols and, and gave me the impetus to spend 10 years um, researching it. In his book, he starts out looking into the cosmology of the Dogon. This is a tribe living in a remote section of faraway Mali in Western Africa. And the Dogon were brought into prominence and no little notoriety in the, initially in the 50s by two anthropologists who worked with them for 30 years, Marcel Griol and uh, Germain Dieterlin, in two books, one called um, Conversations with Olga Tonelli, who was a blind, old Dogen shaman, and secondly in a book called uh, The Pale Fox. The, these works were certainly not, I mean, they weren't bestsellers. These, these works were fairly specialized and were known only to a few. The, they were popularized and brought into serious bestseller of prominence by Robert Temple. Temple was struck by the fact, recorded by Griol and Dieterlin, but not uh, developed, that the, the star Sirius was the prime focus of Dogen religious worship, but more remarkable that the Dogen apparently knew 
that Sirius was orbited by an invisible dwarf star called Sirius B. Sirius B was only discovered by our modern-day telescopes in, I think, the 1950s. It might have been the 1930s, but anyway, relatively recent times. So how did the Dogon, without telescopes and without any apparent formal astronomy, decide upon Sirius and Sirius B as the focal points of their worship? There's absolutely no way that the Dogon, without access to some sort of long-lost information or some way of accessing knowledge that we don't have, figured out or knew that the star Sirius is orbited by a dwarf star. The rest of the symbology and mythology of the Dogon is equally mysterious. I can imagine a group of teachers sitting down today and saying, actually I've read discussions, scientific discussions, uh, from uh, scientists from NASA just brainstorming if, if we had to um, create some kind of a structure here to let another culture know that we were there. Um, what would we possibly do? What kind of a set of symbols would we come up with that would survive for a long enough period of time for an unsophisticated culture to grow to a level of sophistication where they would uh, could then understand that we had been there? Um, that's exactly what this set of symbols does, and I'm very, very impressed with whoever developed them. Very stable set of understandable symbols that could be applied to three different um, important creational storylines and create one set of myths um, that encompassed all three storylines. The three storylines are the structure of matter, the structure of reproduction and genetics, and the third storyline is the surface storyline which really explains um, how these symbols were taught to the Dogen. Amma's egg, which is the unformed universe, uh, opens, and the first thing that emerges is what the Dogen call the Po, which is um, the equivalent of the hydrogen atom, actually. Um, and along that storyline, the numbers 2 and 8 become important. Uh, 2 in that storyline represent a twin pair, which are, I take to be, uh, the hydrogen atoms, which tend to form twin pairs. Eight, uh, represent the electron structure of oxygen which combines with hydrogen to form water and which gets us to the water symbol which is so pervasive We're talking about waters of chaos um, actually the waters of chaos may be a more liter literal statement than we think These days, uh, many astronomers feel that the more usual form of a solar system involves two stars, not one, a binary pair of stars. And that in the solar systems where there isn't a binary pair, like ours, there's a sun and a very large planet that, had it been slightly more massive, might have attained fusion and become a second star. So if you look at our solar system, you realize what you've got are two potential stars and eight potential planets as opposed to one star and nine planets, and that two and eight is the electron structure of water. So when they talk about waters of chaos, they may be speaking more literally than, than it seems. Um, okay, so the, the Po emerges when the, the unformed universe opens. The Po represents the atom. There are many qualities in the discussion of the Po that tell us that it's the atom. It, it exhibits many of the same qualities. Um, the Po is actually made up of electrons, protons, and neutrons, which are themselves made up of four more fundamental groups of particles. Um, the electron is a good uh, particle to discuss because 
the shape that it forms when it, when it orbits uh, nu the nucleus of an atom is a very distinctive shape and a, and a great one for someone to then pick up on and say, okay, we're going to use this as a symbol in our mythology. It's something that, that a researcher later on can get back to and say, aha, this shape is an electron orbit. And so uh, the Sene is represented, yes, exactly by, by this symbol, which is um, very similar to the electron orbit of an atom. Okay, so now you have the Po uh, consisting of um, Sene seeds which act like electrons. Uh, they also behave just like protons and neutrons. They combine together at the center of the pole the way that uh, protons and neutrons combine to form the nucleus of an atom. So they've got their descriptions right up to, up until that point. Um, I, I realized that very early in my, uh, my research that they had those symbols right. So now as I was wrestling with what they describe as the germination of the sene seed, which are, would be the, the components that make up the sene seed, I said, well, if we've got these other symbols right, uh, it makes sense to, to look into what science says about the components of electrons, protons, and neutrons. And I found out very quickly that the symbol that the Dogon use to represent the germination of the Sene, which are four, four drawn symbols, these four symbols are, seem rather obscure, but once you get into the, um, the science of it, you get into what Stephen Hawking says about um, the groupings of particles, quantum particles, that form up, uh, that combine to form electrons, neutrons, and, and protons, um, those particles are combined into four groups based on a property called spin. Spin tells us really what the particle looks like uh, from different angles. Uh, science is able to probe these particles and get a sense of, of if you look at them different sides, what do they look like. Uh, there are four, four types of particles. One looks the same from all sides. One looks the same only if you turn it halfway around. One looks the same if you turn it all the way around. And the last one doesn't look the same until you turn it around twice, which suggests that there's something funky going on uh, with time and space under the covers there mm -hmm. to make it uh, so that you have to turn it twice to get it to look the same. Um, those properties are exhibited by the Dogon diagrams, so the, their four categories uh, match up with Stephen Hawking because of those descriptions of the, of the spin particles. Um, you get down below that level, um, you talk about the number of fundamental particles of matter, and science says, well, we know right now that there are more than 200 fundamental particles, we're not sure how many more. And experiments keep turning up more and more. Many of these particles exist for only you know, a billionth of a second and trying to detect them is, is pretty difficult. But the Dogen come out and say, they don't waffle at all, the Dogen say there are 266 particles. And I said, okay, well that's certainly in the ballpark of what science says, it's certainly a credible number given all the other symbols the Dogen have. You get down below that and um, science says that these particles are, are the result of vibrations of, of um, cosmic strings. Uh, which are the foundation of string theory, which is really an unproven theory right now, uh, but the best candidate we have for how matter is actually formed. The reason that it's unproven is because um, we just can't examine anything that is so very small as a, as a cosmic string. Um, possibly over the course of the next 15 or 20 years, technology will catch up to the point where they can actually see what these things look like. But the Dogen uh, produce a drawing, very similar to the other drawings they do, of what these cosmic strings look like. Science says they're loops. The Dogen describe them actually as coils. They look very much like a loop, but, but you see the details and you realize that it's actually coiled. And that brings us back to all the spiral and coil references in the, in the earlier myths. Um, the vibrations of these, the, the, very, the varying kinds of vibrations of these quantum or cosmic strings um, result in what we see as all the forces and all the particles of matter. Um, if you, at, at this point you have to switch from, uh, from Stephen Hawking to Brian Greene for a discussion of a string theory that is, is presentable at a, you know, a, a, the level of a, a, a user like me, you know, <laughs> a person who does, is not highly scientific. Um, Brian Greene presents in his book several different diagrams of, of typical vibrational patterns of these cosmic strings. And uh, one of those it matches up with what the Dogen say a cosmic string looks like. 
if you follow back through the Dogen symbols, you realize they're taking the most obvious representation of each of these symbols and trying to present it as an example. Um, it's not the only example, but it's the, the quintessential one. So now you've got a, an equivalence between the vibration of a quantum string and this drawing of the Dogen do, which is actually a, a drawing they do, uh, a field drawing they do. They, they draw with sticks in the field uh, at a certain time in their agricultural cycle and produce this, this image that is very much like uh, the vibrational pattern of a quantum string. A rumor arose that the Dogen themselves acquired this knowledge from ancient Egypt, or in any event, that there was a connection between the Dogen cosmology and mythology and the Egyptian. So Scranton started looking for those connections and found them very, very quickly. Uh, the connection to Neith, in, Neith is the mother goddess in ancient Egypt. She's the one who from the earliest references in ancient Egypt uh, was said to be responsible for the creation of matter. She was said to have woven it on her shuttle, um, or with her shuttle. Um, and the weaving references tie back to the Dogon weaving references. They say that there's a spider who weaves matter. This spider is called uh, Dada. And Dada in the Dogen language means mother. So you've got a link between the mother Neith and the mother spider, um, Dada. Um, so um, when you get to Neith, in order to understand what Neith's about, you really have to look at the glyphs that make up her Egyptian hieroglyphic name. Um, there are many different ways of spelling the word Neith, and it looks to me like some of the symbols evolved over time so that what started out in one form ended up in a slightly different form later in Egypt. Uh, her name is written with the complex way that quantum strings intersect themselves. Those two symbols are, come from the words to weave. One is, uh, is written with a symbol which is exactly uh, one of the simple ways that quantum strings intersect themselves. The other spelling is written with another symbol that is exactly one of the ways quantum strings intersect themselves. So you've got three very precise representations of quantum string diagrams or string theory diagrams used to write the name of Neith and how she forms matter. Um, it's it, it pretty much a no-brainer that we've got a, got a connection here. Serpents and clay pots are fundamental symbols of, symbols of many mythologies around the world. And part of the surface line of these mythologies is trying to, it's playing a game with you, a lot like the, the TV show Password. They're trying to get you to say another word back. And so when they're presenting you with spiraling coil, spiraling coil, spiraling coil, or serpent, 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 and clay pot, clay pot, clay pot, they're trying to get you to say waves and particles. And as soon as you said waves and particles, then you're on the track of where you want to go to find the answer. I resisted saying waves and particles. I consciously resisted saying waves and particles for a number of years during my research because I just didn't believe that a myth could be taking me there. I didn't believe that it could be leading me down the path of, of quantum and string theory. So you have to understand that each one of these symbols has multiple meanings depending on which storyline you're thinking about. And so they can take slightly altered forms depending on which storyline you're in. The symbol of Amma's egg, in, when you're talking about the storyline of the structure of matter, 
uh, looks almost exactly like what Stephen Hawking presents as a diagram of, of a black hole, which is the closest thing we've got right now to what the M4 universe might have looked like. Hmm. Um, when you go to the reproductive side, Amma's egg takes more the shape of a womb, and so it's more rounded. Um, it also connects to the symbol of the, the step pyramid and the pyramid, which can take two forms, a flat top and a peaked form. And so depending on which of these, these lines of symbolism you're discussing, the same symbol can have a slightly different shape. I think I came across some of the genetic um, reproduction symbols first, but because the structure of matter symbols had so much more depth to them, you could make a much stronger argument that they were talking about what you said, you, uh, following that path and following the reproductive path. I know that there are other researchers who have, have been actively trying to connect symbols of myth to um, details of reproduction, but there's not enough you have to get it, to, to be believable, you have to get it down to what I call um, self-evident comparisons between two things. Uh, the Chinese were right when they say a picture's worth a thousand words. If you can get it down to where, where two things are self-evidently the same, it makes it much harder for somebody to argue with you that you're wrong. Um, so from the structure of matter side, I could get to that point uh, um, over and over and over again. Whereas on the reproduction side, you had to depend more on descriptions and less on drawings, and so it's not a strong argument. One of the things I finally came to understand about the Egyptian language is that there are two different functions happening with words in the language that reveal more truth to the person who's trying to understand it. Uh, the first function is what's what you can call homonyms, words that sound alike, and what a lot of Egyptologists look at as puns. That only a portion of the, the full meaning of what you're looking for is in any one of those given words. Um, you might see it as an aspect of a god or an aspect of an idea, but you need to look at the other words that are pronounced the same way in order to come up with the truth. Uh, the word for clay is, is one that um, originally I thought clay was just a placeholder for the actual word they wanted to use. And you had to go to the words that sounded like clay to find chromosomes and spindles. Man was supposedly formed from clay, man was really formed from chromosomes and spindles. But as it turns out, clay actually has a scientific role in the process, or may have a scientific role in the process, of the creation of life. It's, it's the substance. Certain clays are, are a substance that act as a catalyst for the formation of the building blocks of life. And so it wasn't just a, a flat-out placeholder. It was really an important piece of the concept. And sometimes there are multiple words pronounced different ways for the same concept, like the Egyptian word thread uh, there are multiple words pronounced different ways that mean thread. If you look at all of the spellings, the hieroglyphic spellings of these words, you come up with um, clues that need to be put together to get the full picture of what they're talking about when they say thread. And on one level, that's um, string theory, components of string theory, and diagrams from string theory. On the other level, it's components of uh, reproduction and genetics. Two main cult centers, or two main religious centers in Egypt, Hermopolis and uh, Heliopolis. Um, Heliopolis, the symbolism is all connected to um, structure of matter. Hermopolis, it's all connected to reproduction and genetics. So when you're talking about serpents and frogs, that immediately makes me think that we're on the human reproduction side, the genetic reproduction side, rather than the structure of matter side. But since the same symbolism is used to represent both, um, when you come down the, the genetic reproduction side, you start out with the self-emergent God, the God who emerged from the waters of chaos is this, the first cell, the first cell of, first living cell, which then produces the perfect pair, which is, represents mitosis, the splitting of an atom, or of a, of a cell. Um, you get into talking about the serpents and the frogs, and now you're into the details of what's called meiosis, which is sexual reproduction, uh, which is more more complicated subject. And then you start getting into either pairs of males and pairs of females being formed, or four males and four females being formed, which is the description of this um, special reproductive process called meiosis, which results in four male cells and four female cells, each with half the number of chromosomes that you would find in an unusual cell. They then combine to form the zygote, which is what then develops into the, the human being. So 
in each of these cultures, part of the duality of the way the religion is set up is because one, I think, is devoted to the, the structure of matter line and one is devoted to the genetic reproduction. In the, that final uh, line, that final storyline, the acquisition of the, the uh, skills of civilization, the symbols are not being used symbolically, they're being used as mnemonic devices. They're being used as ways of helping people remember what it is they're talking about. And they evolved into the graven images that were later forbidden at the time uh, that uh, Judaism and, and, and Christianity came out. Um, the forbidding of those graven images is what I think undermined the structure of the serpent religion, which is why it fell apart um, after the time of uh, the exodus from Egypt. From what I can see, uh, in, in many different cultures around the world, serpents are originally knowledgeable teachers. You even see it in the story of Adam and Eve. The, the transgression that the serpent made was providing knowledge. And you see the same thing, same theme repeated again and again in culture, from culture to culture of the serpent as a provider of knowledge who later becomes vilified and is either said to be forced to leave or is said to choose to leave at a particular point in time. Um, but it also may be discussing the fact that um, whoever these teachers were um, came out of a group of teachers, a larger group of teachers, and they were not, not supposed to have provided us with certain sets of information that they did. And when it was discovered that they had, then uh, number, uh, the other, others of the group became very upset and uh, tried to make sure that that got reversed. Temple's book was something of a bestseller in its day. He drew the conclusion that because the Dogon claimed that they came from the star Sirius, that in fact, literally and physically, the, the ancient astronauts brought, brought humanity to the Earth in one form or another. But this is without going into an argument here, this is only one of the possibilities. The fact is that Dogon's that Sirius worship was a, was a major factor in the Dogon cosmology. Scranton found that interesting. But his interest, is, his interest was in the cosmology himself. From my point of view, part of what created the, what created the tangled knot of, of information out of Robert Temple's book. Robert, Robert Temple's book made some statements that scientists came back and then refuted. And what you're left with is a tangle of information that, depending on the point of view you look at it, you might want to believe, you might not want to believe. Part of what contributed to that was the choice to carry his description to the teachers rather than just limiting it to what was taught. And so in order to stay out of that tangled knot, in order not to have my observations um, lumped into that knot, I've deliberately chosen not to talk about teachers. And I, I've been trying in all aspects of the book not to go beyond what I could actually demonstrate in black and white. Uh, when you get to the question of the teachers, right now we aren't in a position to demonstrate anything in black and white. We can't say for sure it was somebody off-planet. We can't say for sure it was somebody from Atlantis. We can't say for sure much of anything. We can't even say for sure that this culture came out of that culture. I mean, there have been many attempts to say it all started in India, or it all started in, in Mesopotamia, or it all started someplace in China or someplace else. Um, Right now, there are no clear genealogies that don't result in contradictions that say it started here and moved to there. And that all leads me to believe um, that what we're looking at may actually be deliberate, separate presentations of a single lesson plan, but tailored to the regional requirements of each group. So you end up with a serpent symbol that is a, um, a cobra in uh, Egypt but is a rattlesnake in North America. Or you end up with a horned animal symbol that is a ram in one culture and a goat in another culture. Um, 
all the same underlying symbol, but presented in a way that your average person in a particular region would walk out the door of their hut and see a tangible example of it in front of them that would help self-reinforce the teaching of the religion. And if uh, someone put a gun to my head right now and said, what happened? I would say, someone with knowledge arrived around 3400 BC from wherever and deliberately presented a lesson plan in these different regions, South America, Egypt, Africa, India, China, and so forth. Laird's dating of 3400 is, is certainly, that's when it all surfaces, but what's, what seems impossible to account for is that under the circumstances that people are living in at those times, I mean, there's a fair amount of, things are pretty misty when you get back to 3500 BC, but basically you have Neolithic settlements in those places and rather simple sorts of things, like the Dogon themselves. Have, it's a very simple lifestyle that they lead, and then suddenly they've got this incredibly <coughs> sophisticated science that would appear, unless you can get it by divine inspiration, it would appear to be the result of experiment and, and deep thought over a long period of time. And my own, I mean, I'm, I'm more inclined, since as you said, nothing is provable, but I'm much more inclined to think that this is the result of long periods of development that disappear when this cataclysm hits and the ice age breaks up and that somehow the knowledge is kept intact that somewhere it's kept more or less intact only to resurface as if by magic practically everywhere in the world and it's india it's china it's mesoamerica it's egypt and then it's even among tribes that you wouldn't anticipate have this when you see it with the Dogon and the Maori, and I'm sure if we start looking now, we're going to find it with the Oromo and the Eskimos and who else? <laughs> who knows who? Yeah, but everybody seems to have this stuff. Hamlet's Mill shows that procession and astronomical sophistication is written into the mythologies of just about everybody. There's almost nobody that doesn't have it, no matter how, by our standards, simple and primitive the society happens to be. So, what's neat about it is that they have to rewrite the whole history of everything and this is good because if, if in their arrogance they're looking at our society as a, as the most advanced that there is with you know with the nonsense that's going on and the total destruction of just about everything it's of tremendous importance it's not just a, a scholarly quibble but it's of huge importance to recognize that you can have this advanced knowledge and you don't have to deploy it and the way that we do. And uh, if the viewpoint you come from is that the information did come off of our own world, then it almost has to have come from a prior civilization. There's almost yeah. no way, I mean, I agree completely, that there's almost no way it could have just spontaneously emerged if it came off of our own planet. Yes, the, the Maori have almost exactly the same structure with almost exactly the same symbols and it works the same way that um, those who persist in asking the questions are the ones who, who are allowed to know more. Um, it, it seems like a really uh, smart way to have set things up. It, it encourages um, education, it encourages thinking, it encourages, um, it, it also uh, filters out people who are not genuinely serious about the religion. Um, naturally, the ones who are serious about it are the ones who make it in. Or about anything. Yeah, it's a way of weeding out the wankers, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, it's like that in anything. In sport, you want to play professional baseball, those who don't show up and train get cut from the team. And then gradually, those who are willing to do the work get initiated. It's, it's, it's simple enough. There's nothing democratic about that process. But you have to ask the right question. But I, actually, it's com it's completely democratic. I, you know, from another point of view, that anybody can get in. You don't have to be related right. to somebody. <laughs> well, and then what happens is that it becomes nepotistic, and it becomes um, 
paternalistic and it becomes um, um, hereditary. And as soon as it becomes hereditary, it's doomed. In Egypt, that was the same thing, according to Schwaller anyway, that you couldn't become Pharaoh because that was a bloodline thing, but you could become vizier or chief of the scribes or chief of the prophets or whatever. And basically by asking the right questions, even briefly in Christianity, that was there for a few couple of hundred years in early medieval Christianity where you couldn't become king or <clears throat> or lord of whatever wherever you were born, but you couldn't, at least in theory, become pope. question I wrestled with for about a year and a half before publishing my book, which was, should I be publishing this at all? That if I'm right about my theory, what business do I have as an author to present this, well, what I see to be internal secrets of a long religious tradition, what right do I have to come forward and, and present this publicly? Um, the anthropologists, <coughs> excuse me, the, the anthropologists who study the Dogen were constrained by um, uh, ethics of their own profession, and they were felt constrained by having been directly initiates of, of information from priests. I, as an outsider, were, was not falling under those same constraints, so I had to ask that question for myself. And the conclusion that I came to really comes out of the Egyptian hieroglyphs. It also comes out of the Dogen religion, that whoever put these symbols together and whoever um, formulated these myths around the symbols didn't make any obvious attempt to hide anything. Everything was laid out in plain view, hidden in plain sight, as I say. Um, you look at the hieroglyphs and uh, the diagrams from string, th uh, string theory are right there in front of your face. There was no attempt to hide it. So clearly, whoever put this together intended for someone later on down the line to find it. And Based on that intention and based on the idea that there really was no purpose, I cannot think of a purpose for encoding this information in the first place if it wasn't intended to be found. I ultimately came to the conclusion that um, we're supposed to find it. Um, I, I was also um, struck by the fact that there's only about 15 or 20 years worth of information here that modern science is not privy to, modern science is not able to get at directly. So if the original intention of encoding this was to, to act as a boost for us, to give us a leg up on science, we have about 20 years left to get any benefit out of that. So that if it weren't uh, printed now, then science is not going to get any benefit out of it. I'd like to see an astrophysicist take the Dogen formulation of a, of a cosmic string and see if that solves some of the mathematical problems they have with their equations. Um, now's the chance to do it. For a lot of people, always thought that they were incorporating this information into their structures in order to, you know, knowledgeably, so that knowing that things were coming unstuck. The Great Pyramid is often thought to be a repository of, of wisdom, and I've always resisted that. I must say, I always thought they were doing it simply for themselves because it was the best way to, to, to pass that information along. Maybe it's both, actually, because I'm thinking this recent work that I've been doing, reading that I've been doing on the yugas and on the cycles of time, and I'm inclined to think that at higher levels of civilization, they understood that it was, let's say, that it was high summer and that autumn was going to follow and then winter, so they wanted something like, exactly, like a granary, where you store perfect, perfect um, symbol for where you store the seeds until it's time to plant again. And so it may be that these things all over the world are consciously designed so that they can be passed on over the generations, even when the inner meanings have been completely lost. They still resonate because they're valid, as opposed to some you know, stupid superstition like Darwinian evolution or something of the sort. But So these things get passed on, and so they serve as both. In other words, in their own time, because they're the simplest, you don't need higher mathematics to understand these things. I mean, we come at them through higher mathematics and then say, well, gee, maybe we didn't need the math after all. All we had to do was listen to the Dogen. And you can actually recover higher mathematics from the symbol. That's right. I mean. that's, that's the amazing bit. 
So it could be, it could be both. As I said, I was always resistant to ideas that, let's say, the pyramids were built for us, not for the Egyptians themselves. As well. and, and, but maybe it's both. In other words, they, they're built for themselves, for sure, because they want that for reasons of their own that we don't really understand. But then also they build them the way that they do so that when things degenerate, then it's, let's say it's a cosmic winter, there's something that will survive that cosmic winter and when people get around to the level where they can begin to appreciate them again, right. re-appreciate them, there they are. The implications for me are we're dealing with a design system, that these early myths come out of a design, and that implies knowledge on the part of somebody um, sometime prior to 3400 BC. And uh, how much prior to that, it's hard to say. It looks to me that it would have taken at least 100 years to, to establish this. Um, it might have taken much longer than that. 3400 BC may not have been the first attempt to establish this. So there could be there could be earlier um, incarnations of this. This could have just been the renewal of something that was established much much earlier. It's hard to tell. What I can say for sure is it looks like someone around 3400 BC knew a lot about science. That's about as much as I can say. And who that might have been, whether you want to take that to remnants of Atlantis or whether you want to take that to <clears throat> um, people with divine inspiration or you want to take that to um, alien visitations or where you want to take that, what you can say with some certainty is someone around 3400 BC knew a lot about science. Through the course of my book I've been able to identify um, maybe a page and a half or two pages worth of Egyptian hieroglyphic symbols that I think have, have scientific meaning and are sort of the beginning of a scientific notation or, the, or an understanding of a scientific notation within the Egyptian hieroglyphic language. and. Um, I think that focusing on that will, will identify for us a lot of these other symbols, what they mean, and how they got carried forward into some of these other uh, groups. And that's also another very important point about my book, is that in order to make the points that I'm making, I had to deal with um, the literals of science. And that might make it sound like all the symbolism connected to these symbols is should be interpreted literally as science. But that's only one little piece of the picture, and there's a whole other side of it, and there's the whole mystical and spiritual and philosophical side of it that uh, is every bit as important, maybe more important, uh, to a full understanding of what the symbols are than what I've talked about. And I don't want things misrepresented that um, I think that's all there is. I don't. What he has done is, is absolutely remarkable. It's unique in one sense, but in another sense, it is an addition is an addition to a body of work that has been building up actually over the last 40 or 50 years. Initially, it's the great, it's the great French mathematician, philosopher, orientalist, R.A. Shralud Lubitsch, who after 20 years in Egypt succeeded in demonstrating the sacred science of the ancients. In other words, that the Egyptian civilization is not a magnificent dry run for Greece, actually based upon a science, a science no less scientific than our own science, but based upon metaphysical or esoteric principles, and whereas our science is dry and emotionless and devoid of both conscience and consciousness, the Egyptian, the Egyptian sacred science integrated or fused together religion, philosophy, art, and science in one inextricable whole. Scranton soon discovered that the stories were in fact the same. I mean, every step in the Dogon cosmology had its parallel or its equivalent in Egyptian cosmology. And even the symbols that they used for these stages of creation were obviously the same, if not identical, so much the same that it couldn't be a matter of accident. So the establishment, the connection between Dogon and Egyptian cosmologies was established and by extension, extrapolating, um, altogether likely that if anybody wants to do the kind of comparative anthropology necessary, the same parallels are quite liable to show up in, in 
other African tribes, some of which have serious worship as a, as a, um, you know, as an integral part of their own mythologies. In any event, the most interesting part, perhaps, of, of uh, Scanlon's book is that he then decided, just for fun, as it were, to see how the Dogen Egyptian cosmology corresponded to the latest wrinkles in modern astrophysics and contemporary cosmology. And taking a, an encyclopedia article, actually an encyclopedia Britannica, one of the major encyclopedias, looking up cosmology, he found the current story which goes from superstring theory through quantum mechanics and then the various stages to the created universe. And when he put those side by side with Dogen and Egyptian accounts, they were effectively the same. The same story was being told, except that the contemporary astrophysicists and cosmologists weren't intelligent enough to realize that this is an act of divine will, somehow or another ascribed all of this to miraculous Darwinian accidents. Point being that the stories are the same, and when Scranton then went and looked deeper into the matter, reading works by Stephen Hawking and many of the other um, popularizers is the wrong word, but writers describing the latest advances in string theory and quantum mechanics and so on in language that would be accessible to at least educated laymen, um, not only were the parallels reinforced, but even the diagrams that Hawking and Co used to illustrate, let's say, the electron cloud or the stages of string theory corresponded to closely, exactly, to the symbols employed roughly by the Dogon, because the Dogon draw their, draw their symbols through to a hut, and um, very elegantly by the Egyptians who carved their symbols into stone with great precision. Um, fact remains that Dogon, Egyptian, and contemporary cosmologies are so similar that it is impossible to ascribe their similarities to coincidence. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening and namaste.